Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 114. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on May the 4th Be With You, 2023, in New Orleans. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. The Pequot War of 1636 to 1638 was the first time that Europeans in the lands of today's United States launched a fundamentally offensive war to reduce an American Indian tribe to ruin. There I said it. Pious as they were, concerned as they were with God's favor, the moral athletes of the Massachusetts Bay in the mid-1630s were the first Europeans who pretty much made it their business to wipe out an American Indian tribe. The Spanish had done it on Hispaniola and elsewhere to the Taino. But even 70 years after the founding of St. Augustine, the tribes in Florida were still going strong. True, the Spanish had attacked the Calusa in Florida in 1614, a story we haven't told. And as we have seen, done some nasty things in New Mexico. But in no case had they wiped out a tribe. Neither the French and Champlain's colonies along the St. Lawrence. And perhaps most relevantly, neither had the Virginians, who had certainly had their share of conflicts with the Powhatan Confederacy, but would not seek to obliterate the tribe until 1644 and thereafter, when Opakankanaw would launch his third ruinous war with the English settlers. If you are a long-time and attentive listener, you will have some sense of the geopolitics in New England by the mid-1630s. If you are new to this story, the best episode to listen to before this one is Fathoms of Wampum, which we released on December 21st, 2022. There we describe the commercial dynamic that prevailed in New Netherland, essentially New York and Connecticut to the west bank of the Connecticut River and New England during the 1620s and 30s. At the highest altitude, the commercial interests of the Dutch and the English at Plymouth and the Massachusetts Bay and the integration of New England Indians into the Atlantic world's trade network had destabilized the relationships among the tribes in the region. The Dutch had inserted themselves between the wampum-producing tribes along Long Island Sound and the fur-hunting tribes to the north and west. The Pequots, at the beginning of the 1630s, the most powerful tribe in the region, had sought to dominate the production of wampum and maintain trading relationships with the Dutch. The English wanted in on both that trade and the fertile river-bottom land in the Connecticut River Valley, which could only be had at the expense of the local tribes and the Dutch. At a somewhat lower altitude, the competition among the tribes in the region, ancient as it was, would be amplified by the presence of the Europeans. Considering the southern New England coast, the Wampanoag and the Poconoke, whose territory was east of Narragansett Bay, had been tremendously weakened by the great coastal epidemic of 1616 to 1619, which we've discussed many times. Their great sachem Massasoit had made an alliance with the separatists at Plymouth, in no small part against the Narragansetts who had not caught that particular bug. Those two tribes had been rivals and sometimes enemies since before Europeans arrived. 
The territory of the Pequots was along the southern coast west of the Narragansetts. The center of their considerable power was in the lower Pequot River, which today we call the Thames, and which pours into Long Island Sound at New London. There were Neantecs to their west toward New Haven, then called Quinnipiac. The Mohegans, a breakaway group or spin-off tribe from the Pequots, bordered them to the north along the Connecticut River. Finally, there were smaller tribes in eastern Long Island and on the various small islands offshore, including Block Island. All of these tribes were linguistically and culturally related and often intermarried. The Narragansetts even had a word for these peoples, taken as a whole, Ninimisinuic, which translates to common people. Of these, the Pequots were probably the most powerful, with a richly deserved reputation for aggression. In the late 1620s, they had a population of perhaps 16,000. As we discussed in Fathoms of Wampum, the Pequots and the Dutch negotiated a trade deal that made it very much in the interests of the Pequots to extract tributes of wampum, suddenly much more valuable, from the weaker tribes of the Ninimisinuic. In so doing, they alienated tribes that might have been their allies against Europeans under different circumstances. At various times, the eastern tribes in the region tried to entice the English into an alliance against the Pequots. The English did not go for it, but the Pequots were worried it might happen, and that pushed them even closer to the Dutch. Today, when we think of Connecticut, we might think of five-acre zoning, hedge funds, the insurance industry, or even Yale. But in the 1630s, it was all about the river. Indeed, our very name for the river and state comes from the Algonquin word Quinnetucket, which means beside the long tidal river. By the mid-1630s, the Europeans in the region had figured out what the Ninimisinuic had long known, that the Connecticut River was essential to transportation, trade, and agriculture. As early as 1623, even before the famous purchase of Manhattan, the Dutch had established a trading post in the area of today's Hartford, the House of Hope or Fort Hope, so they could buy furs with wampum produced by the Pequots and their subjects on the coast from northern tribes coming down the river. Wanting in on the action, in 1633, the Pilgrims of Plymouth had established the settlement of Windsor to the north of the Dutch, mostly so they could get the best furs first as they were paddled down the river. If this weren't enough, the Puritans of the Bay Colony formed the town of Weatherfield in 1634 and another within sight of the Dutch at Hartford in 1636. Their interest was not only trade, but elbow room. The Puritan Great Migration was well underway by the mid-1630s, and they needed good farmland and pasture land. There wasn't a lot of either on the rocky coast of New England, but the soil of the Connecticut River Valley was excellent for farming and animal husbandry. In short, the Dutch, the English, and the now competing tribes of the Ninimis and Nuak were slowly colliding over trade and demographic imperatives. There weren't a lot of Dutch, and there were all sorts of reasons why they didn't want to pick a fight with the English. But the Pequots were becoming especially dominant because of their access to Dutch metal from which to make arrowheads. The Massachusetts Bay Colony had the biggest population of Europeans north of the Chesapeake, perhaps 
eight or 9,000 by 1636, but were nevertheless far outnumbered in the region by the indigenous population. But they had European military technology and some experienced soldiers, several of whom were veterans of the still ongoing 30 years war in Europe and the English wars in Ireland. That's also important background, for the Thirty Years' War has long been thought of for the totality of its violence, including the slaughter of militarily harmless civilians. The English had done the same in Ireland. The soldiers of Puritan New England had therefore learned to fight during the truly brutal period between the Age of Chivalry and the first development of rules of war among European nations in the early 19th century. That would be very bad news for the Pequots. The earliest roots of the Pequot War date to 1633, when the Dutch at Good Hope confronted the English who'd recently settled on the Connecticut River, a story we told back in Fathoms of Wampum. The English held their own within their palisade, and the Dutch retreated without firing a shot. This taught their allies, the Pequots, that the Dutch might not be reliable if the English went to war against them. Further, the Dutch and the Pequots had differing views of their commercial relationship. The Dutch, consummate merchants, saw themselves as free to trade with any of the tribes in central Connecticut, while the Pequots expected to control all the Indian wampum trade with the Dutch. Now persuaded that the Dutch were weaker than they had imagined, the Pequots killed some Narragansetts, or perhaps Eastern Yantics, who had approached Good Hope to trade. The Dutch commander at New Hope responded very unwisely. The Dutch grabbed the Pequot Grand Station Tabitum, held him for ransom, and then killed him anyway after the ransom was paid. This taught the Pequots that the Dutch were not only unreliable military allies, they were also untrustworthy. Tabitum's murder also opened up a leadership vacuum at the top of the Pequot Confederacy. The ambitious, and as we shall see, duplicitous sachem of the Mohicans, Uncas, put himself forward to step into Tabitum's moccasins, as it were. But the Pequots rejected his bid and installed Sassicus as the new grand sachem. Notwithstanding the murder of Tabitum, the trading relationship with the Dutch was too valuable to give up. The Pequots under Sassicus responded instead according to their culture, with calculated reprisal killings. One of their targets was the decidedly unsavory English merchant adventurer John Stone, whom the Pequots and the western Neantics had accused of kidnapping two Indians along the Connecticut River. Now let's go to Alfred Cave's account of the murder of Stone and his crew in late 1633, from his book, The Pequot War. Quote, Pequots, who related the circumstances of his death during a visit to Boston in 1634, reported that Stone forced his captives to guide him upriver. After Stone's ship anchored for the night, the captain and two of his men took their Indian prisoners ashore, their hands still bound, and made camp. An Indian rescue party tracking Stone waited until dark, then attacked, killing the captain and his two men while they slept and freeing the prisoners. The Indians then made for Stone's ship, but it suddenly blew up in the air. In 1636, however, a Pequot spokesman who parlayed with John Endicott and his army on the banks of the Thames River 
told the English that the rescue party had boarded Stone's ship, pretending to be interested in trade. While his compatriots diverted the crew above deck, the new Grand Sachem Sassicus visited the captain in his cabin. Stone, an alcoholic, soon drank himself into his stupor and collapsed on his bunk. The sachem split Stone's head with a hatchet and threw a blanket over his body. In the brawl that followed, the Indians cornered the ship's crew in the kitchen, seized some loaded muskets, and fired into a supply of gunpowder, which exploded. They then killed the remainder of the dazed crew, looted the cargo, and set the ship ablaze. Back to me. Cave believes that these different accounts do not reflect fabulism, but different narratives derived from Indians on shore and those raiding the ship, somehow mixed up in the Puritan accounts of the Indian testimony. Regardless, Stone had richly deserved it. Eventually, the killing of Stone and the refusal of the Pequots to surrender the Indians responsible would become one of the Bay Colony's justifications for going to war against the Pequots three years later. In 1633, however, it was far from obvious that the magistrates in Boston cared about Stone, and there were those in Plymouth quite happy that he was dead. Cave describes his background, quote, John Stone was a member of an influential and wealthy London family, a licensed privateer who had once scourged the Caribbean. He had most recently pursued a career as a smuggler. Stone was, as New England's Puritans described him, a drunkard, lecher, braggart, bully, and blasphemer. Adding to his unsavory reputation were rumors that he'd resorted to cannibalism while shipwrecked during one of his privateering expeditions. But the captain was also a very skillful entrepreneur, whose Savoie affair had won the admiration of English, Spanish, Portuguese, and Dutch officials from Brazil to New Netherland. Some of those admirers had aided and abetted his smuggling activities. Stone counted among his intimate friends both the governor of Virginia, Sir John Harvey, and the director general of New Netherland, Vater von Twiller. Back to me. Stone had earned the enmity of the pilgrims at Plymouth only the year before, in the spring of 1632. He'd stopped at New Amsterdam on a trading voyage from Virginia to Boston and somehow got into an altercation with a crew of a Plymouth ship on shore leave. In retaliation for some perceived indignity, he captured the Plymouth ship, held its crew at gunpoint, and directed them to sail to Virginia. Before he got very far, however, some Dutch seamen who had been often at Plymouth and kindly entertained there chased down Stone in the Plymouth Bark and forced it to return to Manhattan. Thereafter, it sailed to Plymouth and reported the crime to Bradford and company. And when Stone subsequently arrived at Boston, Miles Standish showed up and demanded Stone's prosecution. The Boston Puritans were inclined to arrest Stone and send him to England, but were worried that his family would use their influence to damage the Bay Colony's interests. Winthrop and his advisors decided to let the matter drop and persuaded Plymouth to do the same. Stone, however, did not comport himself well in Boston. He partied loudly and drunkenly and was ultimately discovered in bed with one Mrs. Barcroft. Now back to Cave, quote, 
Utterly unrepentant and openly contemptuous of the Bay Colony's hidebound morality, the captain was called before the governor and ordered to stand trial on charges of drunkenness and adultery. Winthrop confided to his journal his doubt that the adultery charge could be made to stick, as Stone was in drink when he bedded Mrs. Barcroft and was probably incapable of consummating the act. Stone, ignoring his indictment, prepared to set sail, but a warrant was sent out to stay his pinnace. He responded by abusing Robert Ludlow, a member of the Massachusetts Governing Council. Enraged, Winthrop had Stone clapped in irons, but thought better of it and had the irons removed a few hours later. Kept under heavy guard, Stone was brought before the court. As Winthrop anticipated, the charge of adultery was dismissed. Stone was, however, convicted of drunkenness and fined a hundred pounds. That would be about four years of wages for a laborer back then. The fine was suspended and Captain Stone was then ordered upon pain of death to come here no more. Mrs. Barcroft was bound to her good behavior. Back to me. The point was, in late 1633, nobody in Boston, with a possible exception of Mrs. Barcroft, would have cared in the least that the Pequots whacked John Stone, and there is no chance that the Bay Colony would have gone to war over his murder. Then came the pox. In the winter of 1633 and 34, around the time that the Pequots killed Stone, the old world disease of smallpox spread through Indian villages on the Connecticut River to devastating effect. William Bradford's account is gruesome, so of course we will quote it in full. Those Indians that lived about their trading house there, meaning the Plymouth settlement on the Connecticut River, fell sick of the smallpox and died most miserably for a sorer disease cannot befall them. They fear it more than the plague. For usually they that have this disease have them in abundance, and for want of bedding and linen and other helps, they fall into a lamentable condition as they lie on their hard mats, the pox breaking and mattering and running one into another, their skin cleaving by reason thereof to the mats they lie on. When they turn them, a whole side will flay off at once, as it were, and they will be all of a gore blood, most fearful to behold. And then, being very sore, what with cold and other distempers, they die like rotten sheep. The condition of this people was so lamentable, and they fell down so generally of this disease, as they were in the end not able to help one another, not to make a fire, nor to fetch a little water to drink, nor any to bury the dead, but would strive as long as they could, and when they could procure no other means to make fire, they would burn the wooden trays and dishes they ate their meat in, and their very bows and arrows, and some would crawl out on all fours to get a little water and sometimes die by the way and not be able to get in again. But of those of the English house, though at first they were afraid of the infection, yet seeing their woeful and sad condition and hearing their pitiful cries and lamentations, they had compassion of them 
and daily fetched them wood and water and made them fires and got them victuals whilst they lived and buried them when they died. For very few of them escaped, notwithstanding they did what they could for them to hazard of themselves. The chief sachem himself now died and almost all his friends and kindred. But by the marvelous goodness and providence of God, not one of the English was so much as sick or in the least measure tainted by this disease, though they daily did these offices for them for many weeks together. And this mercy which they showed them was kindly taken and thankfully acknowledged of all the Indians that knew or heard of the same, and their masters here did much commend and reward them for the same. Back to me. Never having read a passage like that before, I'd never truly understood what made smallpox such an incredibly harsh disease. Bradford's graphic account brought it home. And then, without knowing a damn thing about what causes smallpox or immunity to it, and relying entirely on the marvelous goodness and providence of God, the English came out of their palisaded trading post, exposed themselves to the infection, and did what they could to make the afflicted Indians comfortable. This is not to say that the English were inherently kind to Indians. We will see soon how vicious they could be. But it was also the case that individual colonial English, confronted with heart-rending human misery, extended themselves at great personal risk, or at least perceived great personal risk, to help other people with whom they had very little in common. We do not know what percentage of the Pequots died from smallpox that winter, or the extent to which it affected other tribes, some estimates suggest an 80% reduction in their population, from 16,000 to three or 4,000, which would have been on the order of the expected casualty rate and other such first encounters with old-world disease. Regardless, by the summer of 1634, the Pequots were much weaker than they had been, were increasingly on the outs with the Dutch, and were being pressed by Uncas and his Mohicans to the north and the Narragansetts to the east, with whom they had skirmishes over a territorial dispute. They needed a reliable ally, so that October they approached the English in search of an alliance. We know from John Winthrop's journal that the Pequot envoy conveyed the tribe's desire for friendship with the English. Using a bundle of sticks to indicate quantities, he counted out the furs the tribe would give the English in exchange for a deal, and promised fathoms of wampum. He also gave the English a gift of some sort, which the English reciprocated with, quote, a moose coat of great value. A moose coat? I don't even have to know what gift the Pequot gave to the English to know that he got the better of that exchange. The envoy, however, was not a sachem, so that rather than negotiating, the English sent the man away with a message for Sassicus, that he would need to send envoys of higher status if he wanted to talk turkey. So he did, and on December 12, 1634, two Pequot sachems arrived in Boston bearing furs and wampum. They asked the Puritan magistrates to use some of the wampum to broker an end to the Pequot-Narragansett conflict. The urgency of this request was reinforced by a rumor, 
Providence Unknown that reached Boston two days after the Pequot sachems, that the Narragansetts had positioned a war party 300 strong to kill the Pequot ambassadors as they traveled home. The Bay Colony mustered a small armed force, marched to the nearest Narragansett town, determined that 300 warriors was more like 12 angry Boy Scouts, and used the Pequot wampum to buy safe passage for the envoys and a ceasefire. The Boston authorities and the Pequot envoys did negotiate a trade agreement, but the English would not agree to even a defensive military alliance. Though the treaty has not survived, it was written down, the Pequot sachems making their mark by drawing a bow and arrow with a hand. The envoys asked the English to send a pennace with cloth to trade and offered them big land concessions in the Connecticut River Valley. Weakened as they were, they thought that more English in the valley would help maintain the peace. The desperation of the Pequot envoys to get a deal, really any deal, perhaps explains why they caved to overbearing Puritan demands. The Bay Colony negotiators demanded 400 fathoms of wampum, 40 beaver skins, and 30 otter skins. They also demanded that the Indians who had killed John Stone and his men be delivered up to them. The envoy said that all but two of the attackers had died in the smallpox epidemic. They thought he was Dutch because all white people looked alike to them. We report, you decide. And anyway, Stone deserved it for having abducted the two Indians at the mouth of the river. Winthrop was inclined to believe them at least on the question of Stone deserving it, and wrote as much in a letter to Bradford. That did not resolve the matter, however. The civil authorities referred the terms of the proposed treaty to the clergy, who prayed on the question and decided that friendship with the Pequots would only be possible if they coughed up the two remaining Indians who'd been in on the killing of John Stone and his men. That was it, then. The deal would depend on the Pequots serving up the perps, the envoys signed it anyway, in all likelihood knowing that one of the surviving killers of Stone was their sachem, and his ratification would be necessary to turn it into a binding treaty. Now, historians have pondered why the Bay Colony clergy decided that retribution for the reprobate Stone was important. There's been no end of back and forth on the question, with some arguing that the purported concern about Stone was a mere pretext for all that would follow, and others arguing that Puritan theology drove them to believe that the Indians were doing Satan's work in paradise and that Stone's killing was an example of it. I'm no historian, but this all seems like unnecessary complexifying to me. Yeah, sure, no doubt those considerations were important to some of the Bostonians, but it's also true that the New English, knowing in detail what Opa Kankanaw had done in 1622, as you guys do, lived in something close to perpetual fear of a surprise Indian attack. Every killing of any English person, therefore, would have become a local geopolitical crisis, giving rise to the usual debate about whether to respond forcefully and risk escalation or to appease. In this case, after the usual prayer, the Bay Colony leadership steered a middle course to demand justice as consideration for a treaty, rather than extracting it by force or just letting the matter drop. 
It is now early 1635. Again, the citizens and authorities of the Bay Colony would be distracted over the disposition of Roger Williams, who would be banished by the end of the year and during the winter make his way to the territory of the Narragansetts. With the permission of their sachems, Williams established his new settlement at Providence. Regarding the Pequots, very little happened, and that was the problem. English trader John Oldham, who had gotten into scrapes at Plymouth before ending up at the bay, set out in a pinnace to trade with the Pequots. He got nowhere with them. The Pequots didn't cough up Stone's executioners, nor did they send the fathoms of wampum they had promised or communicate to explain themselves. Winthrop decided that they couldn't be trusted. In October 1635, John Winthrop Jr. returned to New England from a stint in Old Blighty. He had been appointed governor of the new colony of Connecticut, which was authorized under a grant to something called the Saybrook Company, a chartered venture controlled by Lord Say and Lord Brooke, two influential members of Parliament. The Saybrook adventurers were concerned about Dutch encroachment, the Dutch would say, claims to western Connecticut and dispatched Junior Winthrop to build a fort at the mouth of the Connecticut River and a settlement there to be called Saybrook. Almost immediately, the new governor dispatched about 20 men to take possession of the mouth of the Connecticut River and begin building. The party didn't run into any Dutchmen, but did tear down a post to which somebody had nailed the Dutch coat of arms. Construction continued into the spring of 1636 under the direction of Lieutenant Lion Gardner, who would go on to write one of the surviving narratives of the Pequot War. Gardner, a Puritan Scot, was ideally suited to the job. He'd fought as a youth against the Spanish in the Netherlands and had stayed on as a military engineer in the service of the Prince of Orange. By the time he reached Boston, he had racked up 12 years in Holland as a master of fortifications. By May 1636, he'd built an imposing palisaded compound armed with two cannon. Parts of his building would last for 300 years until all traces of it were destroyed to make way for a Works Progress Administration project during the New Deal. Now... It happened that Fort Saybrook, positioned as it was to cut off Dutch access to the Connecticut River, put English men-in-arms right between the Pequots, whose main town was at Mystic to the east, the western Neantics to the west, and the Mohegans to the north. This was, suffice it to say, provocative. Intentionally or not, the presence of fortified and armed English would create opportunities for conflict that had not existed before. The Mohegan sachem Uncas, who had unsuccessfully aspired to the grand sachemship of the Pequots after the Dutch had perfidiously murdered Tabitum, spread what seems to have been disinformation, that the Pequots were plotting to attack the English along the Connecticut River. This came via a letter to Boston from Jonathan Brewster, the agent at Plymouth's trading post on the Connecticut in the late spring of 1636. Now to Francis Bremer from his biography of John Winthrop, quote, Brewster's report also included information he had gathered from the captain of a Dutch ship on the river. 
According to him, two Englishmen had journeyed to Long Island to salvage material from an English shipwreck along the coast. They'd been set upon by natives, and one of them was killed. This had followed the murder of two other Englishmen on Long Island, and according to the Dutchmen, the Pequots were incriminated in these events. Brewster felt that this added credence to the rumors of projected Pequot attacks on his own trading post and other English settlements along the river. Back to me. There were those who did not believe the Pequots were behind the attacks or preparing for more. But as there had been no high-level contact between the Bay Colony authorities and the Pequots since their treaty, if that's what it was at the end of 1634, and since the Pequots had not fulfilled their end of that bargain, the magistrates prepared a response to the rumors in Brewster's letter. They directed John Winthrop Jr., still a Bay Colony official while also serving as governor of Connecticut, to demand a, quote, solemn meeting for conference with Sassicus. John Winthrop was to ask them why they had not fulfilled the terms of the Treaty of 1634 and to answer the charges that they had murdered the Englishmen on Long Island. He was also to press them again to produce the murderers of John Stone and his crew. Finally, if the Pequots refused to meet, Winthrop was to return the gifts they'd given the Bay Colony in 1634, which would signify, quote, that the colonists considered themselves free from any peace or league with them as a people guilty of English blood and shall revenge the blood of our countrymen as occasion shall serve. Lion Gardner, in command at an isolated and undermanned Saybrook, thought all this saber-rattling was a terrible idea, but Winthrop did as his dad told him. He was a well-raised young man. There is no record that the Pequots agreed to a conference, but we do know that Winthrop returned the gifts or the equivalent during the summer of 1636. About the same time, John Aldham, the English trader who'd unsuccessfully tried to do business with the Pequots after the Treaty of 1634, was rather gruesomely murdered at Block Island, which sits off the end of Long Island and today is the southernmost point of today's state of Rhode Island. Rather than reinvent the story, which is told in every account of the Pequot War, I'll close this episode by reading you Alfred Cave's account, which scores points for its ugly details, which I know you guys like. Quote, John Oldham had returned to his trading post upriver at Weathersfield. In July, Oldham visited Saybrook again, sold a few items to Lieutenant Gardner, and set sail for Block Island, accompanied by two Narragansett Indians and two English boys. On July 20th, John Gallup, on a trade mission to Long Island in a small bark of 20 tons manned by a crew of three, was suddenly driven by a change of wind toward Block Island. Near the island, he spied a pinnace at anchor, which he recognized as Oldham's. Gallup hailed the little ship but had no answer. Drawing closer, he saw that the deck was full of Indians, 14 in all. Nearby, a canoe was heading toward the island, laden with Indians and trade goods. Suddenly, the Indians aboard the pinnace let slip and sail, being two miles from the shore. But they handled the ship awkwardly, catching the offshore wind and tide and lurching toward the mainland. 
As he watched, Gallup suddenly suspected that they had killed Oldham. He gave chase, and though armed with only two muskets, two pistols, and some duck shot, began firing at the Indians who stood on Oldham's deck, ready and armed with guns, pikes, and swords. Frightened by the duck shot pelting the deck, the Indians dove into the hatches. Gallup then stood off, but caught a good gait and rammed the pinnace on its quarter, almost capsizing it, which so frightened the Indians that six of them leaped overboard and were drowned. Remember, more than two miles offshore. Lacking the manpower to board Oldham's ship, Gallup stood off again, planted his anchor into its stern, caught the wind, and crashed again into the pinnace. The anchor held firmly to the bow, and so, sticking fast to her, Gallup raked the deck with duck shot. He then broke loose and stood off again. Four or five more of the Indians, to escape the gunfire, leaped into the sea and were likewise drowned. Since there were now only four Indians left on board, Gallup and his compatriots boarded Oldham's vessel. One Indian emerged from a hatch and surrendered. He was tied up and thrown into the hold. Then another surrendered. Gallup, fearing that given their skill to untie themselves, the two captive Indians who placed together in the hold would break loose. Through his new prisoner, bound into the sea. Gallup and his men then searched the ship. They found the body of John Oldham hidden under an old seine. That would be a fishing net. Stark naked, his head cleft to the brains, and his hands and legs cut as if they'd been cutting them off. The corpse was still warm. After burying Oldham at sea, Gallup found two other Indians hiding below deck in a small room. They were armed with swords and could not be dislodged. Gallup then unloaded what remained of Oldham's cargo, took his sails, and tried to tow his ship. But night coming on and the wind rising, they were forced to turn her off, and the wind carried her to the Narragansett shore. Back to me. The Block Island Indians, we do not know their tribal name, and even modern academic historians just call them that, were not Pequots. Yet John Oldham's death, by splitting headache, would be the spark in the tinder that would ignite the Pequot War. As has remained the case in our own time, the causes of war are often confusing even to those who make the decision to start the war. Next time, we shall see how this was in New England in 1636. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, connections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. You can buy the books I mentioned through the links in the episode notes on the website, and follow me on Twitter to stay up to date and sample my musings on history and other topics. Until next time.